Today we are in second Sunday of Advent, and our sermon is entitled, Let Earth Receive Her King. I would invite you to bow with me once more as we enter God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. We pray that you would speak through your word, speak through me, your servant, I pray. May the words be yours, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the very first songs that we sang a few weeks ago that uh, was the unofficial kickoff to the Advent season was Joy to the World. We didn't sing it yet this morning. We had it referenced in one of the other uh, praise song adaptations of it. But it's one that we are all incredibly familiar with. It is perhaps the most iconic of all Christmas carols. And even people who rarely, if ever, attend church know at least the opening Uh, lines to this song. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. But as we think of this as a Christmas carol, let me ask you this question. Is Joy to the World actually a song about Christmas? Does anyone know the answer to this question? Is it actually a Christmas song? Henry's shaking his head. He knows the answer because it's actually not a song about Christmas. It might come as a bit of a shock. Let me explain. According to its author, who should know what the song was about, his name is Isaac Watts, and Isaac Watts said this is not a song about Christmas. He based his lyrics off of Psalm 98, verses 4 to 9, our call to worship this morning, in which verse 9 declares, Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. Now, if you stop and think about this for a moment, what is Psalm 98 referring to? Well, it's clearly not referring to his first coming to earth, for Jesus himself, when he did come, said, I have not come to judge the earth, but to save it. And so as other scriptures reveal, it is only at Jesus' second coming that he will come to the earth as its judge. And so Psalm 98 is a song about Jesus or a psalm about Jesus' second coming, and so Joy to the World is actually a song about his second advent. And so, as to when or where Joy to the World started to become sung as a Christmas carol is a subject of some debate. There's different stories as where this began to be uh, included with other Christmas carols. However, what is not up for debate is that Isaac Watts, the author originally intended for this song to be about Jesus' second coming, second coming as the conquering king and not about his first coming as a humble baby. And so while it remains something of a quirk of history that joy to the world became thought of as a song about Jesus' birthday, even when it is correctly viewed as a song about his second coming, it remains fitting to sing this song at Christmas time and in this season. Because while the season of Advent is a time of preparation to be ready to celebrate Jesus' first coming into this world as a humble baby, it is likewise a fitting time to prepare ourselves to be ready to receive Jesus Christ when he returns to earth for a second time as the conquering King of Kings. This is exactly what Watts had in mind when he wrote those words, Joy to the world, the Lord is come, let earth receive her King Let every heart prepare him room. It's a song about preparation at its heart. 
Let every heart prepare him room. And this leads us into our primary focus for today's message and our scripture, which is this. Always be prepared and ready for Jesus' return as king. For if we are prepared to receive Jesus as our king, then we need not fear his return as our judge. Turn with me now to Matthew 24 and verse 36 to 39. Here, this may not be a typical Christmas text, but it fits in this season as we think of his first and second advents. Matthew 24 and verse 36. Here, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he's telling them all about future things that have not yet happened. It's a lengthy passage. It begins earlier where he points out the coming destruction of the temple. They ask him about these things and when will be the day of his return and what things will be signs of his coming. So Jesus gives a lengthy teaching about first the destruction of the temple and then the signs that would precipitate his return to the earth for a second time. And so of that future return to the earth, he says to them in verse 36, But about that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, up until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now first take note in this passage that it is only God the Father who knows the exact day and hour of the Lord's return. However, signs and warnings will be given and are given for those who are paying attention, for those who are alert to watch. In fact, even the evil and corrupt generation that Jesus refers to of Noah, that in the days of Noah, we can read in Genesis chapter 6, the world was so filled with wickedness and violence continually that it grieved God's heart that he had even made man. Even that generation was given a lengthy warning that judgment was coming. For nearly 120 years, as Noah built that ark, we we know that he preached to the people. He warned the people. This was a living object lesson. Look at this boat I'm building. It's not for nothing. A flood is coming. Repent. Repent of your sin. Turn to God. But that generation scoffed at Noah's message. They mocked him for building a a boat on dry land. and, And so they carried on. Just as they had before, nothing changed in their lives. Jesus says they just kept right on marrying, giving in marriage, eating, drinking, doing all of the ordinary things as though nothing would ever happen. Of course, that went up right until the very moment that the door of the ark was closed by God himself. Then the heavens opened, the fountains of the deep opened, the water came, and they were all washed away. So even though Noah's generation, yes, they heard the warnings, they refused to believe them. They refused to get themselves ready, and thereby they sealed their own fate. And so using them as a cautionary example, Jesus says that the exact same thing will occur to the last generation that is alive on this earth on the day of his return. For though they too will have been given ample warning, 
They too will scoff and carry on as though nothing will ever happen, right up until the moment that it does. And so rather than being saved from God's judgment upon all sin by being safely hidden by faith within the gracious provision of our living ark, and this is where the analogy of Noah carries over, that that the Lord Jesus, he is our living ark, and that it's through faith we come aboard in a sense and we are hidden in him. So that when the floodwaters of God's wrath come, we are safe. They wash over us. And we are covered by his grace, secure in the righteousness of Christ. But for those who are not on the ark, for those who are not in Christ, when the wrath comes and the judgment comes, they will instead face that horrifying prospect of standing alone before those floodwaters. Standing alone before their king and judge with no covering, with no safety, with no defense for their sin, and with no valid excuse as to why they have refused to prepare themselves for his arrival by entering into God's gracious provision. And so it begs the question, why? Why would people be warned and not heed the warning? Why would people... Go further to ignore, not only ignore, but to scoff and to mock the messengers who are giving the warning in good faith. That they care about you. They're warning you. They want you to be saved and not destroyed. And yet they mock. Why? Well, Jesus begins to answer the why question as we go through this passage. Why won't that generation of people be ready for his return as their king? And so will only face the prospect of receiving him as their judge. Well, in answer to this question, Jesus proceeds to tell not one, not two, not three, but four parables in a row. It covers the next couple of chapters, all saying the exact same thing, just in different ways. Now, when Jesus puts that much focus on something, I think we ought to sit up and pay close attention. That it's important. Don't miss this. That's why he comes at it so many different ways with four different parables. We're not going to look at all four, but we're going to look at the first three. Now, the first parable in Matthew 24, verses 42 to 44, we'll jump ahead in our passage to verse 42, Matthew 24. Jesus says, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come, but understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch, and he would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. And so here Jesus gives reason number one of why the earth will not be ready to receive her king. And reason number one is this, Jesus' return will come suddenly and unexpectedly. So is a thief going to scope out your house, be like, hey, I, I think there's a bunch of stuff in there that I want to steal. I want to I wanna have what they have. Is that thief, having made those plans, going to send you a letter in the mail to tell you the day and the hour that they're going to break into your house? Are they going to send you a text message first to be like, hey, just heads up on this day at this time, I'm coming to rob you. No, of course not. No thief is going to do that. Otherwise, the homeowner, if if that's you, you're going to be good and ready for him. Probably have the police on standby. 
So just as no thief would operate that way, instead they would choose a day and time that you are least prepared and, and most surprised. That is when the thief is going to strike. Well, Jesus says in the same way, he is going to come catching an unprepared world by surprise, like a thief in the night. Now consider for a moment an alternate scenario. Now, as of today, it's December 4th. That means we have exactly 20 days left to get ready for Christmas, right? Who's got all their shopping done? Anyone? Oh, there's more hands than I expected. Well, good for you, but for the rest of us, we know we got plenty of time, 20 days to get ready for Christmas. Now, that's because we know Christmas lands every day on December 25th. It's fixed on the calendar. But suppose with me for a moment that Christmas did not happen every year on December 25th, but instead happened on a randomly selected day. And this randomly selected day would only be announced the morning of the day itself. So it could be February 2nd, August 21st, you know, any one of the 365 days in the year, and it's only announced that morning, but once it is announced... It immediately becomes a national holiday. School is canceled. Work is canceled. Everyone is expected to exchange gifts and get together as families and have turkey and ham and celebrate. Now imagine if Christmas came that way. What kind of hustle and bustle and outright mayhem would occur? What would happen? On that day, it would be a mad scramble. Putting up Christmas trees, lights, Black Friday type crush as people are packing into the stores and shopping malls. Grandmas and mothers trying to get Christmas dinner prepared. The streets are clogged. Highways are congested as everyone's breaking the the speed barrier trying to get home for the holidays. It would be wild. Now in this scenario... The only sure way to avoid being caught unprepared is, don't miss this, the only way is to live every day in a state of continual preparedness. You are always ready. Today could be Christmas Day. I'm going to be ready. So that would mean that every year on the day after Christmas, You would go out and buy all of your gifts and put a turkey in the freezer because you never know when that day will arrive again. So let me ask you, if this were true, in that scenario, would you be the person living in that state of continual preparedness? Or would you be the one caught off guard, madly scrambling with the crowds? Which one would you be? Now, if we're honest... I would definitely be in the scrambling group. Some of you who are really good at planning and preparing might be the ones to say, yeah, I would, I would get ready the very next day to not be caught off guard. But now in this scenario, let's just shift gears slightly. In the same way, the day of Jesus' return is unknown. And he emphasizes that. The day is unknown, the hour is unknown. And so just like this scenario, it will come suddenly. And so the only way to not be caught off guard is to live our lives every day in a state of continual preparedness, ready to receive him as our king rather than as our judge. Now the second parable Jesus tells in Matthew 24, 45 to 51. The second reason, he tells this story of a master who puts a faithful servant in charge of feeding the other servants in his household before he goes on a long journey. 
Then, if that master returns unexpectedly and he finds his servant still faithfully doing his job, the master will be pleased and he will give his servant a great promotion. However, if the servant is wicked and he says to himself, the master is staying away a long time, I can do as I please, I'm going to rule this household like I'm the king, And he starts to mistreat the other servants and beat them and take their food and throw feasts for himself and carry on and get drunk. Then when the master returns home unexpectedly and he finds him living this way, he will be so angry that he will have the wicked servant killed, cut up into pieces. Not a pretty picture. And so this leads into the second reason that the earth will not be ready to receive her king. And this is Jesus' long absence. Jesus' long absence. It's taking him, in our estimation, a really long time to come back. And Jesus is preparing the world for this through these teachings. Now I want you to notice the key element in this parable is that the servant begins to think his master has been gone a long time. And so he begins to think that he can do as he pleases without fear of any consequences. However, when his master did eventually return, he was caught completely unprepared, he's drunk, and he has to face the consequences in full, which are not pretty. Now, there's a humorous story. I've shared it once before some years ago. And the story goes that there's this young couple that has made plans to go out on their very first date. At 6 o'clock p.m., he's going to take her out to a nice restaurant. And so when the time comes that he was supposed to pick her up, six o'clock comes, the lady's all ready to go. She's excited. She's a little bit nervous for the first date. She's all dressed up. She's got her makeup done just right. She's, she's ready. She's waiting expectantly by the front door. But six o'clock comes and goes. Then 6.30 comes and he still hasn't r- arrived. And she begins to wonder, did I get the wrong time? Has he stood me up? Seven o'clock rolls by without so much as a phone call. Now she knew it was true. Yes, he had stood her up. First angry and then dejected, she washed off her makeup. She changed out of her nice clothes into a pair of flannel pajamas. She grabbed a big spoon and a full pail of ice cream and just plunked down on the couch to watch TV to drown her sorrows in ice cream. Well, eight o'clock, the doorbell rings. She opens the door, and lo and behold, who is it but her date? A full two hours late, standing on the front step with a nice, big, beautiful bouquet of flowers. But catching sight of her in her flannel pajamas, his eyes widen in disbelief, and he blurts out, I'm two hours late, and you're still not ready? Now, men, as a caveat here, I am not advising this approach at all. (laughs) But it helps illustrate the same point. That just because Jesus seems, from our viewpoint, to be staying away for a long time, this does not mean that we can stop faithfully living in a constant state of preparedness for his return. Even Peter, in the first century church, he had to deal with this issue that Jesus was taking a long time coming back. And in 2 Peter 2, 3, uh, he wrote to the early church saying, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, but he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So if, like the girl who grew tired of waiting for her date to arrive, 
We grow tired of waiting for Jesus to arrive, thinking that perhaps he'll never return, and then beginning to think that, like that wicked servant, we can live however we please and indulge in the pleasures of sin without consequences. Well, if so, then we too could be caught off guard and unprepared when Jesus arrives unexpectedly. And so now let's look at Jesus' third parable, answering the same question, the parable of the ten virgins, moving now into Matthew 25, 1 to 13. I won't read the entire passage, but we know the gist of the parable. Here there are ten bridesmaids, all having lamps, and they're waiting for the bridegroom to come so they can join the procession and enter into the wedding feast. But the bridegroom is taking a very long time. Evening rolls by and night comes on. It's now dark. The sun has gone down when finally the cry rings out, the bridegroom is coming. And so there are five wise bridesmaids. They have brought oil with them, anticipating that things could go on into the night and they wanted to be ready for that. And so they light their lamps to join the wedding procession. But then there are five foolish bridesmaids who have brought no oil with them. They're thinking things are going to go along uh, very, very fast, and, and these are just a formality. There's no lamp, pardon me, no oil to light their lamps. And so when night has fallen and the cry has gone out, we need to have our lamps lit for the bridegroom's arrival, they first try to bag some off of the other five, and they say, no, 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 that's not how this works. We don't have enough for the both of us. And so finally, they have to scramble. They try to run to a store, but it's the middle of the night. Where are they going to find oil in the middle of the night to buy some. And so while they're out trying to find some oil, the bridegroom arrives. And the wedding procession goes in. And they go into the feast. And when the other five foolish ones come back, they realize they've missed it. And they even go to the gate, and they are barred entry. They are not allowed in. Now, take note in this story that, first of all, it is the groom who is the center of attention. Because in the male-dominated society of Jesus' day, that is how weddings were celebrated. The focus was on the groom more so than the bride. Now, for us, it's the opposite, right? Here we, we tend to put the biggest focus on the bride. She's got the beautiful dress. It's for her that everyone stands when she enters the room. And, and the groom, he's just kind of the sweaty guy standing up next to me, on the stage, you know, like, oh, what a lucky guy. He got such a beautiful bride. But in Jesus' day, it was the reverse. It was the groom for whom everyone stood and waited for with bated breath. And part of the wedding celebration was a feast that actually followed the formal ceremony, kind of like our receptions, I suppose. They would go on much longer. Often they would go for days, depending on the wealth of the ones who were throwing the feast. And so this is the, the type of setting that Jesus is referring to in this parable. Now, it was traditional for the bridesmaids to wait at home or, or somewhere nearby for the bridegroom to come out and to then have him uh, go by so that they join this wedding processional. This was also a tradition where there would be this processional and they would join in, but they would have to wait for him. And another part of the tradition was for the bridegroom in this waiting period was he would often negotiate with the bride's father about a gift to give them in return for their daughter, something like a bride price 
Now, there had been initial negotiations, but then this was sort of the last negotiations. All right, it's really happening now. You know, what, what do we really need to do here to seal the deal? And depending on how uh, tough the negotiations were, that could drag out the process, hence waiting into the night before finally everything is settled. And so, these things, having all uh, caused the, the night to drag on, the, the five foolish bridesmaids are now in a perilous position. They were not prepared to, lo- to wait for this length of time. And so in Jesus' story, in this delay, when he arrives, they're not ready. They had no time to go get the extra oil they needed. And so we see here in this parable that procrastination and a lack of preparedness ahead of time It caused them not only great embarrassment when the groom came and they missed out, but even more that once they arrive at the feast after the fact, saying, hey, we're we're here now, let us in. These harsh, very stern words are said, I don't know you. I don't know you. You are not welcome in this wedding feast. Now, this is where it takes a bit of a twist. Because, of course, Jesus is not talking just about a wedding feast. He is talking about his return. And at the outset of this parable, he says, the kingdom of heaven will be like. And so there's some debate as to what exactly Jesus meant by saying the kingdom of heaven will be like. And then he tells this story of the ten virgins. But I believe the straightforward meaning of these words are correct. That is there will be those who appear like those five foolish bridesmaids. They will appear to be inside the kingdom. They will profess faith. But like the five foolish bridesmaids, they are actually unprepared for the Lord's return. They have the form of the lamp, but they are missing the oil, the substance, the spirit. And so the implications of this are deadly serious. Verses 11 and 12 Jesus concludes the parable by saying, When they come, saying, Sir, sir, open the door for us, he replies, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. This carries the echo of Jesus' words from Matthew 7, where he tells his disciples that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And that even when they begin to list great things that they've done in service to him, he will say to them plainly, I never knew you. Now, there's always a fine line to walk in these teachings between salvation by grace or by works. So just to be crystal clear, the invitation to the wedding banquet is a free gift of grace. It cannot be bought, earned, or merited in any way. However, the evidence... The sign of whether or not we have truly received that gracious invitation by faith and that we are known by Jesus, the sign, the evidence of this is by our obedience. Our obedience. 1 John 2 verse 4 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. The five foolish bridesmaids' actions revealed the true conditions of their hearts. They were unprepared to meet the bridegroom. But on the other hand, the five wise bridesmaids' actions revealed the true conditions of their hearts as well. 
They were prepared. They were ready to meet the bridegroom at any hour and be welcomed into his wedding feast. 1 John 2, 5 and 6 continues, But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Here we see very important principles that we can't miss. Don't miss this, my friends. A believing heart is a prepared heart. And the evidence of a prepared heart is a prepared life. A prepared life is one that is being lived in daily obedience to God. And so in the end, the reward of a prepared life is that it has no fear whatsoever if Jesus should suddenly appear. Because it is daily being lived in the eager expectation that today could be the day that I see my Savior. And so unlike those who will try to scramble at the last moment to get ready, or to make excuses as to why they weren't ready, the prepared life, the one lived in daily obedience to the Lord, is one that can say with complete confidence, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, I'm ready. And that is God's desire for us. That though we do not know the day or the hour, we will each live as though this is the one on which we will meet Jesus face to face. Years ago, when 20th Century Fox advertised in the New York papers to fill a vacancy in its sales force, one applicant replied, I'm at present selling furniture at the address listed below. You may judge my ability as a salesman if you stop in to see me at any time pretending that you are interested in buying furniture. When you come in, you can identify me by my red hair. I will have no way of identifying you. So such salesmanship as I exhibit during your visit, therefore, will be no more than my usual workday approach and not a special effort to impress a prospective employer." You will receive the same attention as any one of my customers. Now, would it surprise you that from among the more than 1,500 applicants for that job, he got it because he was treating every customer as though it could be his employer. Every day, faithfully, doing the job to the utmost of his abilities. So, in conclusion, the questions are from all of these parables the same heart of the matter. Are you like the prepared homeowner? Are you like the faithful servant and the five wise bridesmaids with the oil? Are you ready? Can you say with complete confidence today, let earth receive her king? Are both your heart and your life being lived in that state of constant preparedness that today could be the day I see Jesus face to face. Or the other end, is Jesus sober in question? Will you be caught off guard, not ready, unprepared, scrambling like the rest of the world? My friends, again, listen closely. If you know deep down that you're not ready, don't wait don't wait until the bridegroom comes calling to prepare. 
And if you know that there are areas of your life that you are not living in full obedience to God's will for your life, don't procrastinate. Don't put it off. Don't say, oh, he's been away a long time. I got years to get this right. Don't wait till tomorrow. Start today. Walk in obedience to God. Don't be one of those who looks back on their life in regret of all of the words that have been left unsaid or the deeds left undone for Christ and the sake of his gospel. God has only given us one life to live. And we don't know how many days this life will hold. But he's only given us one. So may we use it wisely. May we redeem the time walking step by step, day by day with him and for him, always ready, anticipating the day that we will receive him as our king and not as our judge. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this teaching and we thank you for the emphasis you placed upon it with four parables, no less. I pray, Lord, that we would take the same message in all four to heart today. That we would be those who are ready to meet you. That we are prepared in our hearts and in our lives. That you are our king. And we live for you and no other. And Lord, we have also received your warning. That upon your return, those who are not ready have only the fearful prospect of receiving you as their judge and all that that entails. And so we pray, Lord, that today with sober consideration, by your Spirit, would you shine in our hearts to reveal to us, even in this moment, whether we are truly ready to meet you face to face. Whether it is by your return or by our death, we know that day will come. And perhaps very soon, we don't know the day or the hour of either event. And so, Lord, may we take heed to be ready today and to not put it off until tomorrow. Give us a sense of urgency and may we live out this life of faith with joy. Each day that you have granted us is a gift. May we give it back to you. For this we commit ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.